Hello and welcome to this episode of The Pod Presents Primarily Context-Based. You may have noticed the slight name change. As the founder of Skillerwell, you can probably tell I can't resist an aquatic pun, and we realised that we should have been calling this The Pod all along. This podcast is a collaboration between CTO Craft and Skillerwell. It's inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow, where questions have a single right answer, and questions can then be closed and archived if they're considered primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer. They are primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers and the context that makes them appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skiller Whale. We do deep coaching for tech teams. That's individually personalized, hands-on sessions with a live expert delivered remotely in one-hour chunks. I've been a CTO for the last nine or 10 years of my life. I've run CTO dinners for three years and I've coached CTOs. And in all of those roles, I've seen the same questions come up again and again, but with different answers every time. And that's because context is critical. This week, you're tuning into part two of a discussion with the wonderful Mary Williams. Mary is a highly experienced CTO who has led teams ranging in size from 30 up to 300 in organizations from the Challenger Bank Monzo to Helix, among many others. And in this episode, we're going to be picking up a discussion on feedback and its impact on empowerment. Let's get into it. How do you see feedback and the relationship with empowerment? I think it's really important that that you need to have uh, feedback in order for there to be empowerment, because one of the base needs we have to feel empowered is that we're in control of our own career. And being in control of your own career means that you um, get enough feedback that you know what you're doing well at, what you're doing not so well at, and you can choose something to change, something to, to try to focus on. And one of the things that's quite nice uh, in recent years is that we've realized that people shouldn't just focus in in feedback and in development on the things that they're bad at. They, they should focus on going from good to great as much as possible and only focus on a lack or a, a, a poor um, skill if it's uh, what I would call a controlling weakness, so something where they have to get better at it in order to do well at the job. Um, and so I think there's, on the one hand, that sort of positive element that we've, as a as an industry, gotten a bit better at realizing that accentuating people's strengths is valuable rather than always just focusing on what isn't there or what, what isn't a strength. Um, but I think receiving feedback is still quite a emotional thing, partly because we've... Um, mm. We've tainted the word feedback, I think. We've made it mean negative things. We've made feedback means when people, when somebody says, I have some feedback for you, it's the second scariest phrase in the English language. The first being, I think we need to talk from your partner, right? Like that's that's truly terrifying. But if, if somebody at work goes, I've got some feedback for you, it's not like we skip into the room expecting wonderful things right that that phrase usually means some tough love is coming at at best or some really negative information is coming at at worst um there's a great book called uh, thanks for the feedback where what i love about it is that the two authors one of them has the the default attitude to feedback of like 
-hmm. All feedback's useful. It's all just extra information that they can learn from. And the other, despite knowing how valuable feedback is, despite knowing all the psychology of how one should react to feedback, still has a like, no kind of reaction every time they're, they're given feedback. They have an emotional kind of response to it. And I thought that was really interesting um, that even these, you know, the, these two authors of a, of a book that's all about feedback and how to give it and receive it well, even within the two of them, they have this fundamental difference in how they're likely to respond uh, to feedback. And the, the, the author who talks about um, having that emotional reaction also talks about needing to like get through his emotional response before he can then take the feedback on board. Um, and I think that's a remarkably common experience actually i think even those of us who want to to grow and to to hear what we're doing well and not well at so that we can that we can grow and we can develop it's still very difficult to hear those things because we're you know we're going through our role day to day hoping that we're good at what we do and so anytime that you hear something that that you're not that great at it, it is tough yeah it's challenging it's challenging a core conception that we have of ourselves which is that you know i'm doing all right really yeah. and i think that's part of the Maybe it plays into the kind of imposter syndrome, which, you know, in general, we, we're all quite aware of now as technology leaders, that it's, it's easy to feel like you aren't doing a bad job. And so feedback is something to handle really carefully. You, you stimulated loads of thoughts in me when you were talking just then. One is, one is one of the things that I've noticed as I've got more senior in organizations is that I get less and less feedback. And so I have to really actively seek it out and try and draw it from, from people if I'm going to improve. I think one of my own personal failure modes is um, at one extreme of the feedback giving spectrum. So I think at the start of my career, the first time I had someone reporting to me, I was very bad at giving feedback in a way that was useful. I would describe this now as trying to be nice rather than trying to be kind. I was trying to get a, aim for an easy social interaction rather than helping someone to improve. And so this report of mine, I was giving lots of feedback, but always very gently and kind of indirectly and sort of suggesting, and none of it happened. And so there was, for me, there was this learning of gradually ramping up the kind of directness and the clearness and the setting of goals before actually I realized I had to be quite explicit that like, I am now going to give you some feedback. You're doing really well in these things, but here is something where I'd like you to improve and here's how I'd like you to do it. I think it's it's interesting as well because there's a definite difference between feedback which is sort of take it or leave it you decide whether you're going to act on it or not and performance management but we're not necessarily trained as managers to be super clear about the times where this is not an option this is not a choice you can make whether to improve on this thing or not and there are plenty of times where there is there is that option like not everybody has to become a brilliant public speaker not everybody has to uh, become an architectural thinker not every Everybody has to necessarily become a, a line manager. It's perfectly okay to have a career where you don't ever develop any of those skills. Damn. But if you are in a role where one of those skills is essential and you don't develop it, then you're like cruising for a bruising, right? And I think we're not always good enough at, as managers. And it's something I cover a lot with, with new managers. It's something I, I train when I, when I run workshops is that we have to be explicit when it's feedback when it's optional or when it's performance management when it's like you need to get better at this otherwise you're going to suck at your job um, or you need to get better at this otherwise you're never going to get promoted to that next role that you want because this skill or this uh, element is essential in that role um, and so i think one of the things that 
that every manager goes through, as, as you did, is, you know, having to get more explicit about whether something is a choice or not, whether something is uh, an, an option to, to get better or to, to choose not to invest, or whether it's a must do. Um, mm. like a must fix in uh, in coding terms um i think is is really important but quite difficult to do um i think the other mistake that managers often make is to be too what i call attaboy um with positive feedback where it's not it's not specific it's not concrete it's not including examples so sometimes people will be very generic and very general in their positive feedback it's not much more than a thumbs up um whereas with their uh negative feedback they're much more explicit and detailed than everything else and that means that quite often the um the negative feedback looms very large in people's minds it's all that they remember because not the the same kind of good feedback uh, fundamentals haven't been followed on the positive stuff. And it, I think it's why feedback is often synonymous with what you're bad at these days. It's not, it's nobody, nobody hears, I've got some feedback for you and, and goes, yeah, excellent. I'm going to be told all the things I'm brilliant at. It's not the, the typical reaction people have. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's interesting to sort of touch on the way that feedback is given as well, because I think that's so important. I think there's this, this other extreme there, that I've seen, which is, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of radical candor. It's that book where, like many other things, the the good ideas in it have kind of have the potential to be lost, and people take their own kind of interpretation of it, which loses all of the benefits of the approach. And so, one of the things that's happened with people who've read or misread or heard about radical candor is they interpret it as just say what you think loudly <laughs> um and so <laughs> to basically remove all of the the kind of cushioning and gentleness from feedback and just say i think to the extent that the author has now written the second edition of the book that specifically says it does not mean this i don't know whether that will prevent the problem but i'd like to think so sort of reminds me of people who took um strong ideas weekly held and sort of forgot the weekly held part and were just like yeah strong ideas weekly held therefore i'm just gonna say what i think all the time there was a, I saw a textbook example of this actually just a couple of weeks ago, nothing to do with work. A friend and I, we did a day of skiing at an indoor um, ski slope. And this friend is a teacher, but not the, not the world's most gifted skier. The first few times he went down the slope, he basically just went straight down and relied on the barriers to prevent him going off um, at the bottom. And then this other person who was skiing, um, turned around and literally said, can I, can I give you some feedback? This, this man had been very competently skiing down the whole time we'd, we'd been there. And then reeled off, I think three or four, you know, very clearly like delineated, bullet listed points. He just said, um, can I give you some feedback? And he was like, this is what you're doing wrong. When you're coming down, you're doing this. People don't use this technique in that situation anymore. What you should actually do is this. And he just turned around and faced the front after he'd, after he'd delivered this kind of 60 second speech. And particularly because my friend is a teacher and a, a very competent and good one, I think he knows how to give feedback. And I like to think as a manager as well, I've also got a lot better at delivering feedback over time. And we were both just so shocked at the kind of the delivery of this because it was it was probably all accurate, but the way it was done made it entirely useless. And <laughs> all, of, all of the kind of elements of good delivery were, were removed. And so, yeah, I think it's incredibly important to think hard about the level of feedback, as you were saying, but also the whether it's a kind of must fix or a, an optional thing to look at. 
and also how you give that feedback is really important for it to be useful to people. But we were talking about empowerment earlier, and I think actually for empowerment, concrete, well-articulated, positive feedback is one of the most important things that you need because people need to know when they're doing something right because that gives them the confidence to keep doing it. Whereas if they feel like they're just sort of operating without much immediate informative feedback, Mm -hmm. then they don't know whether what they're practicing is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, And, you know, fundamentally, the more we can make our work uh, resemble, you know, there's this quite academic definition of deliberate practice, which is the the type of practice that you really, really learn from. Mm. Um, And if we can make work resemble that, and one of the big tenets of deliberate practice is that you get immediate informative feedback. But I think often people, managers don't know that they need to catch someone doing something right and tell them about it and tell them about it in quite concrete terms. Um, I had this realization at a certain point in my career that, you know, sometimes people take a job or a promotion because their mentors believe in them more than because they personally believe that they've got the the ability to go and do that thing. And it, it fundamentally changed my approach to feedback. It made me realize I needed to be much more explicit and much more concrete with people who were doing well mm-hmm. about what they were doing well and how well they were doing at, at, at those things. Because in the in the absence of information, imposter syndrome just proliferates. Um, like and, and it can make people either really arrogant because they assume they're doing great unless somebody tells them otherwise, or it can make them really, really um, you know, full of imposter syndrome, worried that they're going to be found out, worried that they're not actually doing that well and so um you know if 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 anybody's going to take anything away from this i think it's that you've got to remember that for for empowerment that concrete positive feedback is super super important and making time to tell people what they're doing well at and and specifically what it is that they're doing right is really important Mm. i'm guessing you've come across the idea of mindsets before the idea of like a, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset and one of the things i've read about mindsets is that people interpret bad things they've done in very different ways so the idea the broad idea is that a fixed mindset means that you think you are who you are and you you are unable to sort of change and grow from that and a growth mindset um, means that you you see yourself as this kind of malleable ever-changing person who has the potential to grow and change and one of the differences in the way that people think about feedback is when a person with a fixed mindset is criticized they see it as about them as as permanent and as about generally about tasks that they've done but where, where someone has a growth mindset they see it as about their work not about them as a sort of not about their identity almost and they see it as fixed in at a point in time and therefore subject to change in the future and on a specific example and i find that as a useful way to think about feedback so when I give feedback now, I try and make clear that it's about the work, not about the person, that it's about this specific instance when something was was done and that it can change in the future. I, I find those kind of three elements, having read them in this other context, are a useful guideline for giving positive and negative feedback and because it's then it encourages that that sense of like, okay, well, I can change what I do next time. And then the next instance will be a kind of clean slate to see if if what I've done reflects this feedback that I've had. Yeah, this might be a tangent, but it reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. And he talks in that about how actually if you track the progress of kids from underinvested in backgrounds, 
if you chart their progress against very privileged kids, actually during term time, the kids from underprivileged backgrounds are growing faster than those who are from sort of middle class, upper class families. But what happens is that then vacations happen. So, so these underprivileged kids are actually during term time growing at a much faster rate. They're learning a lot more. They're growing at a much faster rate. Um, but then what happens is that holidays come along. And because they're from um, a less privileged background, their parents are very busy. They're both working. They're often not put into, you know, summer camp, which you know, it's a very U.S. thing or um, what, what are termed enrichment activities during during holidays, whereas kids from middle class, upper class backgrounds tend to be invested in in that way. But one of the other things he talks about is how uh, if you're from a working class family from a poor background, your parents are much more likely to think that any talents you have are just inherent. And I remember very clearly having that experience as a kid that my parents thought I was I was good at school and I was good at art. And these were just characteristics of me. They weren't something that needed to be encouraged or needed to be um, you know, developed in me. They were they were just things that were. And then I went off to to high school at a um a very unusual place, which is the it's the oldest girls' school in South Africa, but it's a state school. It's it's not um it's not private, but it's a boarding school. And I remember for the first time having the experience that doing well academically on its own didn't matter anymore. So I'd get 99% and the teacher's comment would be, well, if you'd only studied a little, you could have got 100 rather than, you know, well done for 99%. Whereas when I was in primary school, like the fact I did zero studying and still did well was almost more impressive than if I worked hard. Um, and it, it led to me being a very different person. I think that instilled that growth mindset in me much more successfully in this high school that I went to because the teachers were much more concerned with whether you were working hard, whether you were trying to develop, whether you were trying to improve yourself than whether you were sort of naturally talented at at, at something or not. Um, And then, yeah, in in later life, I've become a little obsessed with this idea of talent and whether it even exists because actually there's a lot of evidence to show that though we may have an an initial inclination towards something, our actual talent level depends on how much effort we put in, how much um, individual practice we do if we're a violinist or how much playing with the team you do if you're a hockey player um, and there's a you know, but there's a, another book called um, uh, talent is overrated which is a, a much more kind of a much deeper examination of the science behind outliers um, that's very worth reading and, and very interesting in, in this regard because it, it it's all about how you know natural talent doesn't really exist you might have an inclination but what matters is the effort that you put in and, and how well structured the activities are as deliberate practice so that over time you really really um build and learn um from from what you're doing day to day and it, it made me think of that quote you know that the harder i practice the luckier i get you know like maybe there is some level of innate talent that, that people can have but i think you get left behind if you stop trying and you stop improving and I think that's part of our role as leaders and as managers is exactly that to to identify people who are really talented or people who have some spark of something and to grow them and to help help them develop and make sure they don't stagnate. And part of that is telling them what they could do better. And part of that is telling them what they're already doing well and encouraging more of it. 
You mentioned earlier that you struggled to, the, the more senior you get, the harder it is to, to get more uh, more feedback. And I, I think everybody finds that. It's very, very true. The power dynamics get harder and harder for people. And um, one uh, quite useful trick for that is that rather than asking people, what did I do badly or what could I do better? Asking people, how could I make this 20% better? Or how could I make this 10% better? Like being very specific that you, it, it telegraphs that you know you could be better and you're genuinely asking for for the for the next thing and if somebody gives you something really simple as the way to make it 10% better or 20% better then you know you screwed up yeah <laughs> it's quite useful if if they if they how could you make this better is really basic stuff that you're like okay I did pretty badly at that <laughs> mm, yeah that makes a lot of sense okay great thank you I'll, I'll certainly be using that one and I, ho- I hope our listeners do as well Mary, I want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your insights. I think this has been a really awesome episode. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a joy to talk to you. I hope you found today's discussion useful and interesting. Join us again in two weeks' time when I'll be talking to Matt Bellinger from Omnipresent about hiring in a fast growth environment.